through whom all things were made, we join with all of creation in singing our hallelujahs to you. What a God. There's none like you. You are vastly superior, incomparable to everything. And yet, in the mystery of your condescension and humiliation, you have come near to know us in the person of Jesus Christ, to reveal your glory. You are the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature. We worship you, Jesus. You spoke and everything came into being. What a creator. And best of all, you looked at our dead hearts and you spoke into them life. You created faith in our hearts. You opened our eyes that we might know you and have a relationship with you, that we might look upon you and see your glory. And until that day when we see you face to face, give us increased faith to walk with you in obedience, to walk with you in servanthood, to walk with you in humility, to walk with you in praise, to join all of creation, saying, holy, holy is our God. There's no God. Use this time for our edification. Use the word of God to perform the work for which you sent it in these verses we look at today. In Jesus' name. If you weren't here last week, here's the handout, a biblical perspective on the earth. We're looking at this because the earth does come up as a wisdom issue in the book of Proverbs. So skip to the whole first page and look at the second stapled page. Scroll down the middle to where you see, about a third of the way down, creation as a witness to God's goodness. A witness to God's goodness. Somebody read these verses from Psalm 145 for us. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Thank you, Janice. What's this tell you about the goodness of God? What's revealed in these verses? Common grace. It's a, it's a statement of common grace, right? God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Look at people enjoy the taste of their food. By the goodness of God. The point is they ought to acknowledge it. That these things come from the hand of a good God. The fact that his mercies are over all of his works means that the world works a lot better than it deserves to work. And the only reason we don't self-destruct and kill each other in the spirit of Genesis 6-5 and the Lord looked and saw that the violence, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and the only intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and therefore the earth was full of violence. The only reason the earth isn't that way is the restraining hand of God. His goodness restraining evil. For God to take his hand off and let human beings do what they naturally do, we wouldn't last long on the planet. His mercies are over all his works. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. We bow down and worship. How about Psalm 104? One of my most favorite psalms. This is just a small portion of it. But it speaks to this, that creation is a witness to the goodness of God. Who would read that for us? You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. 
Thank you. So the creatures not only reveal the wisdom of God and the way they're made, but the wisdom of God is this is the way he gets us sustenance and nourishment. It's the wisdom of God that food, can, that your body is made to digest food and turn it into energy and health and keep you healthy. The wisdom of God. Every meal we should thank God for his wisdom, for our taste buds, for the miracle that, that we have food. It's uh, a testimony to his goodness. That's, I guess, why most Christians say grace before they eat. They acknowledge these things have come from God's hand. You open your hand. You satisfy our desires. God is a person who's irrepressibly generous. Like, you can't stop him from being generous. If he was just just, he wouldn't give us any of these things. He'd withhold them as, a just, as an act of just judgment. But he's so generous, he just gushes over his desires to meet the needs of his creatures, even those who hate him. Even those who hate him. That's the gospel, isn't it? He meets our need for salvation and reconciliation uh, with God through Jesus. He saves those who hate him, whose heart's disposition is, keep your grubby hands off my life. And the miracle is that he changes that disposition of our hearts to say, rule my life. Let me enjoy you forever. Let's look at the, the actual, I've only got one verse there for you, but I'll turn to, in your uh, book, your, your book, your Bible, it's a book, that's what it means, Bible, the Bible, book. Turn in your Bible to Acts 14, I just want to read it in a little bit greater context. This also is one of my um, most favorite verses. Uh, Paul and his buddies are at Lystra, we're told, Acts 14, Verse 8, now Lystra, there's a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Incidentally, that's where we get the, the uh, biblical term hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. So because they believe Paul was interpreting the message of the gods, they nicknamed him in this context Hermes. But that's where we get hermeneutics, the study of biblical principle of interpretation. Uh, where are we here? 13. 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought out oxen and garlands to the gates, wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, we, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. So Paul's going to parlay this into a great opportunity for the gospel, right? Don't worship us. You're worshiping the wrong people. We're just vessels. We're bringing you good news about the real God. We're going to deliver you from the delusionment of these false gods. Who's the real God? He made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. So, great place to begin in apologetics, if you're doing pre-evangelism with somebody, is, is you might begin with, yeah, how did you get here? And uh, why, why are you the way you are? Why is life so complex? Etc. I was uh, reading in World Magazine, I believe this week, anybody who's familiar with World Magazine, that uh, Michael Behe has another, he wrote Darwin's Black Box. He's got another book out on 
on uh, the impossibility of life beginning on this planet through natural processes. And apparently there's a, a new website now where a thousand secular scientists have signed that I don't believe in Darwin anymore. Secular scientists, not just Christians, but secular scientists. Think. There's a website, uh, you know, Darwin didn't get it right. Because he, he didn't understand the nature of the self. Or <coughs> and now we do. The more we learn, the more it proves the glory of God as creator. So, back to the text. He's preaching God as creator to them. Verse 18. Past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. So Paul is going to tell them that God has been witnessing to them and all nations through what means? Through this means. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. How did God reveal himself to them? Revealing his goodness. Giving them rain to grow food, satisfying food. Okay? Creation, a testimony to the goodness of God. So I think an honest person would say, okay, why is it that on this planet we humans are able to eat food and it actually nourishes us? Why does it taste good? Do I have taste buds as the result of the co-location, the random molecules bumping, bumping into each other over billions of years. Is that why I have taste buds? Or could there be another explanation? It's worth asking the question. God is saying, this is my testimony that I'm good. This part of creation. Uh, moving on then, unless there's any other comments or questions. Moving on to Psalm 8. Who would read the beginning of Psalm 8 for us? How about a man? Thanks, Frank. So here's David, and there's no floodlights in Jerusalem, and he's got a real clear sky. And what two things is he apprehending? On the one hand, the what of the universe? The... What's that? The vastness of it. The vastness of it. I mean, he doesn't know that this... I don't think he knows the sun is, what, 93 million miles from the, from the earth? I don't think they discovered that until sometime later. But he's feeling the vastness of the universe in comparison to his own smallness. Why would you consider, look at all that. And, you know, the scripture tells us he's named all the stars. Yesterday, we went down 193 and drove into the, uh, the Goddard Space Center Visitor, Visitor Center. And they actually have a live camera of the sun. You can look at the sun, what the sun's doing right now. Pretty cool. No, you don't burn your eyes, obviously. And there's pictures of galaxies and stars and all these and nebula and all this kind of stuff. I don't know anything about it. Did I say it right? Nebula? But there's billions of stars. God's named every one of them. He's got a name for every one of them. Now, I, I didn't do the math, but if you sat down to name a billion things, and let's say it took you two seconds to name it. Joe, Frank, Susie, Sally, every star got a name. How long do you think it would take you to name all those stars? I, mean, I don't know. Somebody do the math and bring it back to us. <laughs> all right. My, yes. I, uh, Jamie Duguid preached on Psalm 8 at some point since we've been here. And he raised the point about 
the night sky as the work of God's fingers. And almost this gave me a new appreciation perhaps for, you know, all it took was his finger to do that, right? I mean, that's just a tiny bit of his creative power. So I thought that was a new consideration also as I read that Good. song. So the grandness, the greatness of God. Okay, here's the sun. There you go. Just like you put a dot on something you're writing on a piece of paper. There's the sun. And you know the sun's a picture of God, right? You can't live without it. You can't live with it. You can't look at it. It's too holy. It'll, you'll burn your eyes. We can't be in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed. And yet you can't live without him. And of course Jesus is the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings to bring, uh, bring us near to a God who's otherwise unapproachable and holy. That's why the sky's blue. Blue is a sign of royalty in the ancient world. The reason is just constantly remind us, oh yeah, you rule in the heavens. You're king. King over creation. Secondly, creation reveals a number of things, such as the intransience of the word of God. Someone read that for us. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Thank you. So what is Peter inviting you to do? He's actually quoting from Isaiah. What's he inviting you to do? Go outside, look at the grass, and conclude what? That's like me. It's going to die. All the beautiful daffodils and John Quills and tulips are going to come up in the next couple months. The flowers on the Persephone, they're going to bloom in all this beauty, and then they're going to fade away. And you're supposed to look at that and go, what? I'm going to die. I'm going to fade away. I'm going to turn to dust. But there's something in the world that is intransient. What is it? The Word of God is not that. It's got similarities to it. It's beautiful. It nourishes us on and on. Read Psalm 119 as a breathtaking meditation on the glory of the Word of God. Psalm 119. It kind of messes up your daily Bible reading plan if you read a psalm a day because it's so long. But here's a tip. This is where I am roughly in my Bible reading. You're going to come right into the Songs of Ascent after that, and they're real short. So go read a shorty and go back in and pick up the 119s that you know. That's what I've been doing the last couple of days. What, what was I saying? And this, and Peter goes on to say, it's this, this, intent, this intransient word of God that's caused you to be born again. The word of God is eternal. It's zoe. That's the Greek word for indestructible life. Two words in Greek for life. Bios. We all in the room have bios. We have everything in creation has bios, biological life. Zoe is the life of God has in himself. It's, it's, it's eternal. It never changes. It never had a beginning. It never had an end. When you're born again by the word of God, which also is eternal, you get that in you. And that's on the strength of which we have eternal life in us now. Jesus said, if you believe you have eternal life now. How about creation as uh, revealing God's intent to provide for his own? Who would read the passage from Luke 12? L sorry, friend. A little louder, okay? Thank you. Great. Thank you. 
Thank you. Wonderful. So what two things in nature are we're being compared to? Birds and the lilies. What does it say about the what does he, uh, Jesus say about the birds and the lilies? They are under his care. Under his care. The, the lilies are beautiful, more than the most beautiful clothing anyone can ever make. Right? Study a lily. They're beautiful, they're under care. And what do they have in common? God feeds them. God feeds them. They don't grow food. They don't grow food. There's no agriculture among lilies and birds. God takes care of them by direct right by his direct care. On the other hand, we grow food, but that's also an indicator, as we've already seen from someone before, that God cares for us. So what's the comparison then? These, they die, they get thrown into the fire. What about you? You're worth so much more. You're made in his image. He created you to glorify him in a unique and different way. You're made in his image. And if God cares for you by feeding you even, even more, then that ought to elicit in us trust, which Jesus is saying faith. And the opposite is worry. Fretting, anxious. What's he going to do? Am I going to have it? And typically, the more you have of the earth's goods, the more you tend to fret. I mean, as a rule. I have found in my life that I was a more grateful person when I had less than now when I have more. That doesn't mean that's true for you, but I just know there's a, less gratitude in me. When, that you're, when, sorry. You're needy. when you're needy. When you're needy. Yeah, then your needs are met. Because you're, we're dependent yeah. upon him, I think. Yes. The needy know how dependent they are. Right. Good. Okay, let's move on to the top of the next page. Creation reveals man's dependence on the Creator. Somebody read these verses from Psalm 103 that begins, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name, and Thank you, Lisa. So you're reading that in your devotions, and you, you read, okay, God is God, and I'm not. In what ways do I try to act like God? Just to ask that question. That's something to repent of. If God is God, in what ways do I not trust him to be God? Something to think about, ponder, meditate on. He made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. What might that bring to your heart? You're his. What might that bring to your heart? Comfort. Peace. Peace, comfort, assurance. God made me. Actually, the doctrine of creation is very helpful to me in times of doubt and struggle and trial. I go back to the fact that, no, God wanted me to exist. God woke me in my mother's womb. I, I, that's something I've never struggled to believe, thank the Lord, that God made me. He wanted me to exist. He wanted, wanted me to be on this earth. I somehow just never doubted that. Well, I'm very grateful for that grace. That should bring us comfort. I'm his. What should it also bring us? Think about it. Begins with a C. <laughs> of course, my. How about conviction? In what ways am I acting and thinking and speaking like I'm not his? And that's what sin is. 
It's just acting, thinking, and speaking in ways contrary or denying the fact that you're God and God calls you to mirror his glory in the way that you live. So you should read that and ask him to convict you of sin. And then one last C, if you're convicted of sin, there's one reason, oh, well, the ultimate reason is to drive you to confess it, yes, absolutely, never confess without Christ. And what was the cost to God to make you his sheep? The death of the shepherd. So you always read the Psalms at multiple um, uh, horizons. The initial horizon, what would this mean to David and his original audience? Secondly, how is this, how does this point to Jesus? How would Jesus, what would he think reading this psalm about his own person and work? And how do we Christians with the light of the New Testament shining back on this? How do we read it? You never understand this psalm apart from the shepherding work of Jesus. He bought you with his blood. That's how we become gods. Well, there's two levels. He created us and he redeemed us. So we're twice gods. That's why our worships have, should have twice the glory. Okay, let's move on to any other thing you want to say about that? Do you see the three, three C's in this? Comfort, conviction. What ways am I living like I'm not his? A wandering sheep. Isaiah 53, all we, we like sheep have gone astray each to his own way, but he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the assurance of pardon in today's worship service. How about the creation reveals to us the university accountability of man's knowledge of God? These are some of the most important verses in all of the Bible. You never understand the nature of, the nature of man. You never understand the need and necessity of the gospel apart from these verses. Very, very important verses. So I'm going to read it and unpack it a little bit and ask you some questions. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. What is the organic cause of human wickedness? The organic cause, according to the verse. It's not a hard question, it's in the verse. The suppressing of truth. That is the organic cause of wickedness. Wickedness just isn't out there. It is the fruit of something. So there's a dynamic going on in the heart of human beings that leads to wickedness, and that is the suppressing of truth. Remember the days when you'd go to a pool or out in the ocean and someone would blow up a beach ball? And you take the beach ball and you try to submerse it. You try to sit on it. But sooner or later, it's going to pop up. Right? It's just really hard to keep down. There's a truth that human beings are actively suppressing. They're keeping down. And we're going to find out what that truth is. And the, the insidious pernicious nature of sin is sin not only causes me to suppress the truth, sin hides from me the fact that I'm doing so. That's what makes sin so pernicious. That means leading to death. I suppress the truth and then sin hides the fact from me. See, walk around College Park for a day. Find as many unbelievers as you can and ask, excuse me, is there any sense in which in your heart of hearts you're suppressing the truth of God? They would tell you honestly, are you kidding? I never think about God. They would deny it. They would consciously deny it because they're not aware of it consciously. 
for the most part. Now, when people get aware of it consciously, it means they're being converted. The Holy Spirit is beginning to bring the ball up to the surface, and they're beginning to realize, I've been suppressing something that I can no longer suppress. That's a beautiful thing. We need to walk with people patiently and humbly through that process. But ask the average person. Look, the average atheist is a sincere atheist. They really don't believe there's a God. Consciously. But that's because sin is suppressing the truth of God and hiding the fact from them that they're doing that. It's a very important thing to understand. So it is 10 minutes to go. Oh, 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, thank you. Ah! She won't suppress the time. <laughs> Nor should she. <laughs> okay. P wicked people who suppress the truth in their, in their wickedness. Verse 19. They know the truth about God because... How do they know it? Because it has been obvious to them. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Um... Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God. How many true atheists are there in the world? Zero. Everyone knows God, Paul says. Everyone knows God. They knew God. On what basis do they know God? Creation. Everything God has made is screaming his attributes. John Calvin describes sinful man as blind at high noon. No excuse. So this tells you two things about the nature of... And what type of re revelation is Paul talking about here? What type? You know, there's two types of revelation... Natural and special, or, uh, or general and supernatural. So he's talking about natural revelation. And natural revelation is both sufficient and insufficient for two things. Natural revelation, according to this verse, is sufficient for what? The knowledge and accountability. Condemnation. Yeah. Condemnation. It's sufficient to condemn you. It tells you you know God. It tells you you know God. That's a scary thought. Remember last week I said um, Bertrand Russell, the 20th century atheist, was asked one time, well, you know, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian, and basically the book is Why I'm Not a Christian is I don't believe anything exists besides what science can prove. And of course, all he's doing is telling you the presuppositions of his worldview. You can't prove that the only way to know something is through the scientific method. That's an assumption that, that drives a worldview. It's another discussion for another day. And Bertrand Russell said, well, here's what I'm going to say. And they said, if you died and stood before God, what would you say? What did I tell you last week? He would say what? Not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. And Bertrand Russell did die and stood before God, and we can be sure what? He'll be judged. He'll be judged, and he'll know that all the evidence was there. Tragic. Tragic. We should weep over the death of anyone that refuses to acknowledge the obvious. So natural revolution, revelation is sufficient for condemnation, insufficient for what? Salvation. Salvation. You can't look at creation and go, oh, there's a Savior who died on the cross for my sins. God must substitute for me in the person of his son, sinless son, Jesus Christ. So here's what this is like. When we first moved to Texas, we were inside one time. It was kind of stormy outside, and we heard this... And they have these big poles along the main streets, and there's sirens atop, 
that indicate a tornado has been sighted. The siren is sufficient to tell me a tornado a tornado's been sighted. It doesn't tell me what to do about it. I had to look to my wife and go, what do we do, what do we do? She knew, we, right? Any good man would do that. What do we do, honey? She said, we all get inside the bathroom in the middle of the house with a, with a radio and a blanket and water and we stay safe there. Creation is sufficient to condemn me. It doesn't tell me what to do about it. I need natural revelation, excuse me, special revelation, scripture, supernatural revelation to tell me what to do about it. And glory to God that he does, that he tells us. Okay? That's what Paul's saying here. Since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Everything God made, they can see clearly. This isn't fuzzy. They can see clearly his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became utter fools. So what Paul is saying is that there is a dynamic at work in the heart of every human being that looks like this. See, we know God. We know God in our heart of hearts. And what according to the verse, as we are, as we, we, were, we were built to relate to God, this circle at one point goes in this direction. What do we owe God according to the verse? Thanks. Thanks. And worship. worship. I think some translations say they did not honor him. That is what he is due. He's the creator. He is due thanks, worship, and honor. That's when you know you're rightly relating to God. But and So there's this dynamic in us. We're all religious. Um, theologians call it the sense of deity. Paul appeals to this on Mars Hill, to the Athenian philosophers, the sense of deity. Right? You, you know there's a God. Your poets even say we have and move, live and move and have our being not far from him. Here's the sense of deity, but sin, instead of doing the right thing, giving thanks, honoring, worshiping God, Sin turns, and now what do we do in its place? We think of false gods. We are, we are irreducibly religious, irrepressibly religious. We are religious. We're going to find something to give our honor, thank, and worship to. Okay? In their case, they made all kinds of idols, birds, creeping things, this and that. In our modern world, we, we give uh, power. Remember I said in a sermon recently, the point of an idol is the power you give it to make your life what you want it to be. We have other idols that are not material necessarily. Okay, see the dynamic? Very important stuff. Paul then sets up the necessity of the gospel and how God comes and changes our hearts. Are we out of time? No. no? Any questions about this? This, th this accounts for why there are so many religions in the world. The fact that there are many religions doesn't mean any one of them is right. It just means that people tend to be very religious. <laughs> no, really, some people look at, they look at all the religions of the world and they go, well, how can anybody be wrong? They're there, they must be right. As if I could go down the street, make up my own religion, and because I made it up, somebody then is bound to say, well, it must have a claim on the truth because I made it up. No, that religion only reveals the extent of the imagination of my own mind. That's all it reveals. Thank God there is a truly revealed religion and it comes from this precious book. I've quoted a verse for you from a wonderful song by Anne Steele called Thy Lovely uh, Source of True Delight, Whom I Unseen Adore. 
unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more, that I might love thee more. How many know uh, thy lovely? Okay. Here's the second verse. It's right there underneath. This, this. Thy glory or creation shines, but in thy sacred word I read in brighter, fairer lines, my bleeding, dying Lord, my bleeding, bleeding, dying Lord. See, there's a glory in creation that's shining. There's a greater glory in the gospel, in the redeeming work of Jesus. Okay. The one creation is sufficient to sufficient to condemn. No excuses. The other sufficient to save us from our sins. Jesus. Thou lovely source of true delight, whom I am seen adore, unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more, that I might love thee more. And the, the last one here is that obviously it's just a recapitulation of what we've seen above. Creation reveals to us God's divine attributes. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Probably a good place to pause. Uh, uh, sorry to drag this on so long. We'll, we'll obviously pick up a new subject next week. We'll finish the bottom third and pick up the new subject next week. Gail. I think we should go back to Proverbs 119 and praise God for you because you have amplified joy and bring in glory to him and everything you do think and say. And we just sing happy birthday to you.